Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Good morning to you and welcome to another edition of Better Living, a show about the people and organizations that make an impact in and around the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. I'm your co-host this week, Jared Sandler from 105.3 The Fan. A little later on, you're going to be hearing from the great Chris Arnold. I want to thank you for joining us here bright and early this morning. Right now, though, it's time to welcome in Dr. Linda Garcia, Senior Vice President from To Engage, a tremendous organization that serves in the world of foster care in partnership with some other great organizations as well. Dr. Garcia, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Thank you for having me, Jared. I guess we'll, we'll start off easy here. What is To Engage? To Engage is the community-based care organization that manages um, a, a network of foster care agency in the uh, Texoma and the uh, big country area in what what is under Department of Family Protective Services would call uh, Region 2. And how uh, I always like to, to ask people this. How did you get involved with To Engage? What's your what's your journey to where you are right now? Well, I was fortunate that prior to joining To Engage, I was actually right here in the DFW area working uh, at, at with uh, ACH Child and Family Services, who actually was the first uh, urban contractor to receive the, the uh, contract for the community-based care organization here in the DFW area. And so uh, when To Engage uh, in Region 2 was uh, awarded the contract, uh, I had the opportunity to join To Engage to help them launch their uh, case management uh, division within um, the foster care arena. What are some of the... The, the the core principles the you know the the the, the strong elements of, of to engage that are important for people to know yes uh, I appreciate you asking that because the 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 biggest thing is that we are a performance-based con- uh, contractor for the Department of Family Protective Services and so the core principle is that um, you know we manage the uh, agency, but also we are also in the protective mode of the foster children in our community. So first and foremost, we need to keep them safe uh, while they're in our care and to make sure that we uh, find them the best placement when they come into care. You know, children are removed based on their, they've been abused and neglected uh, to no fault of their own. So the family um, investigation removed them, and then they are put in our care. So our responsibility is to make sure that while they're in our care, let's get them into a, a family-like setting um, that is not, um, you know, it's not a residential treatment center or it's a group home. And at the same time, our goal is to keep them close to their community where they removed from. I mean, think about it. If you were a 14-year-old, you know, you're you're in the seventh or eighth grade, and suddenly, because of something horrible that happened to you, uh, to your family, you're removed. Imagine if you were living in um, in the Fort Worth area, and then you're removed and being sent in place all the way in San Antonio, way far away from all your friends, all of your uh, relatives, any cousins or aunts or uncle, even just knowing where your your schools going to school, you know, your teacher. So that's part of our goal is to keep them in their home communities, find another family like uh, foster family that will keep them in safe and care. 
The other thing is that, um, you know, what if you're a sibling, you know, sibling group, you, you know, you're the caretaker for your two brother, you know, your two little brothers. Um, a lot of time we're not able to find homes that will take all three of them. And so we're having to split them up. So imagine if, you know, your, your 10 year old, your eight year old and your 14 year old, this, this, this sibling group, and they're just scattered. One's in San Antonio, one's in, in Austin, and then one, luckily, maybe they've landed in Fort Worth. Just imagine the trauma that these kids are going through. And then, you know, um, so we try desperately to keep all of our siblings together because of that. And then the other thing is a teenager. If you were a teenager, a 14-year-old, what I have, is the, the crisis that we have in our system is that the 14-year-old, everybody that, uh, or majority of the licensed families that we have in foster care, they like to have small children. Um, they're not trained or they're, they're not ready to take a teenager in their home. So it's been really difficult for these, these older youth that come into our system. We end up having to send them to a residential treatment center or some sort of, you know, group home, which is not our preference. Our preference is to be able to find them a foster family that will take a teenager and work with them who's been traumatized. No, that, that's interesting, Dr. Garcia, because I think a lot of people think about the placement on the, the back end of, okay, now we got to place, uh, you know, a, 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 a child with a, like a permanent family. But uh, I, I guess maybe some people overlook the the care and thought that goes into placing them in a foster environment. But I guess, you know, based on what you just shared, that's a, a really big part of, of what you all do. Yes, sir. That's exactly what we try to do is to keep them, give, give them any type of normalcy uh, in their just a traumatic, traumatic experience that they're having. What What's a typical environment like uh and, and and what are some of the differences maybe uh other than you know not having the same relationship that a, a child might have initially with the a foster family that they would with you know a, a family that that raised them but what's what's a, a typical environment or life like for them in a foster environment compared to what you know maybe someone driving around experiences when they're uh you know in their their typical natural home environment Sure. Uh, it, it is there, and it depends on the situation of that child, how that child came into care. But a, I would say a typical foster family environment is that um, they have a lot of stakeholders, adults that are now in their life. You know, a, a typical family is that you have, you know, they go to school and they have their teacher and their, their parents and, and, you know, uncles and nephews and everything. When they are moving to a foster family, all they know is their foster parents, but then they also have a CASA, a court-appointed uh, a, a, a court appointed specialist advocate that is assigned to them. They have their attorney that represents them. They also have a department, uh, what is called a case manager. We have a case manager that, that visit them, um, you know, uh, on a monthly basis, and then also communicate with them virtually. So there's a lot that's just in the care of this child while he is he or she is in the foster family. So lots and lots of adults. And then if they are in need of mental services or or therapy, there's there's usually a therapist that they are you know seeing once a week. So a lot of different. Um, stakeholders that are involved in their lives that, you know, and in all of that, they still have to go to school, you know, and they have to try to have some sort of normalcy. And then on the weekends uh, or even on weekdays, their the visits are arranged with their biological parents. So very disruptive and pretty much uh, not, you know, knowing what day of the week, who's going to be there and what they have to do in order to just um, be in that foster family-like setting. Talking with Dr. Linda Garcia, the Senior Vice President of To Engage. And, and Dr. Garcia, this might be a very silly question, but I, I'm just curious, are there any different challenges when the, the foster 
child is a boy or a girl, uh, and, and maybe that depends on you know what their ages are. But uh, are there different things uh, that uh, are different challenges based on the gender and the and, and the challenges of placing you know whether it is a a teenage boy, a teenage girl, or a, a preteen you know boy or girl? No, I think um, for teenagers, <laughs> the challenges are both. They're they're teenagers. You know, teenagers are that mystery years that um, all of us are trying to figure out how do you connect with teenagers. So it takes the challenges would be it's about the family. Uh, it's that family who, who can nurture and understand what it's like to care for a teenager. That's probably the biggest challenge. What are the things that, what are the needs? What are ways that, you know, people driving around can, can help and, and be in part of to engage and, and support you and, and what you all are trying to do? Foster. The, the, there is such a huge need for foster, quality foster parent. You know, if you're driving around and if you think, um, and it, it doesn't, you can become actually, there's, there's, you can, if, if fostering, if you're not ready to have someone in your home and that's just not a, a right choice for you, but you know somebody, you know, you have friends that, hey, I've been thinking about that. I want to become a foster parent. Tell them about it. Tell them about to engage. Tell them about our, we need more foster parents. Um, or if you want to just become a, a, a mentor to these foster families or even the foster children, uh, or even um, babysitting, respite, they call it, you know, keep them for 24 hours, be a babysitter to give a relief to some of the foster parents that are caring for them 24-7. So those, right now, we have a huge need. Um, like one of my county that I work with, work in, we have 550 kids that have been removed from, uh, you know, from their homes. We have only 100 and 50 foster families. And so guess where all those kids are going? Kids are going everywhere else except for in their community. So, yes, the huge need is foster, foster, foster. Well, okay, so I'm, I'm Joe adult driving around, and I'm thinking, man, this seems like such a great cause because, well, obviously it is. Uh, and I, man, I, I hear Dr. Garcia talking about the need to, you know, for, for more foster families, foster parents, I'm not sure if I'm cut out for it. I, I don't know. How, how do I know if I'm, I'm able or ready or I can be a good foster family? What are the things you would say to that person? I would say get, uh, contact one of our uh, child placing agencies, which we manage a network of over 50 child placing agencies. Uh, and any one of them, a licensed foster care agency, you can just call and talk to a recruiter and say, hey, I am really interested in helping your, you know, the youth, and uh, I may not be ready for foster, but can you tell me about it? So you can actually, Joe, go and attend one of the, orient, you know, the orientation meeting, and they will tell you all about what it's like to become a foster parent. And at that time, there's no commitment. You can also tell them, hey, um, this is not for me, and they can help you. Hey, maybe you can become a CASA where you're, you're the one that's visiting the kids, or maybe you can just babysit, or maybe you can just mentor. So there's all these uh, experts uh, that can help you at the orientation meeting. And then I guess on the flip side, I, I know you're obviously not in the business of, of turning away families or, or volunteers in this regard, but, you know, as you indicated, the you don't want to put someone in an environment, uh, put children in a, in a bad environment or, or an environment with a family that maybe isn't prepared. So maybe you got, I guess, if we were to do a 180 on that question, Dr. Garcia, you got Joe Adult driving around thinking, oh, this is going to be a piece of cake. I mean, I've you know, kids are easy and blah, blah, blah. Uh, this is, you know, no brainer. What would be some of the things you would maybe uh, share with that person and in, in saying, okay, that's great. You're so eager to do this, but take a step back and think about these things before you commit, because we don't just want you to commit. We want you to commit and be a great, uh, a great parent or, or, or provide a great environment for these kids. Oh yeah. So the, 
to become licensed to become a foster parent, it's a rigorous process. I will I'll be the recruiter, be the first one to tell you it is not a cakewalk. Um, they will research, do background checks on you. There's a training program that each agency will will uh, have you to complete, and they will also come into your home and inspect your home. They will also background check any of your friends and neighbor the the frequently frequent visitors in your home so it's it's a very intrusive process um but part of that is uh, i mean uh, overall a lot of that process is to ensure that you can provide a safe nurturing environment for the children that are coming into care so no it's not an easy process it is a very rewarding process after you complete all of that but There are, you know, I would say we have a 50% um, turnover rate as far as, you know, we may have an applicant like yourself or Jared, Joe, going through the program. And um, the, the recruiter and the home study developer will let you know, you know, hey, I'm sorry you don't qualify, but here's some option for you. So it is a very rigorous process. We're talking with Dr. Linda Garcia, Jared Sandler here with you on Better Living. Chris Arnold will take over at the bottom of the hour as we continue to focus on some amazing organizations uh, in and around DFW. And To Engage uh, is certainly among them. Toengage.org, by the way, is the uh, the website. And that's a, the number two. And then Engage, not E-N-G-A-G-E, but I-N-G-A-G-E. So the number two. The word in, I-N, and then G-A-G-E dot org uh, is the website. So if you're driving around and and maybe you want to look further into this, uh, all sorts of information on the website, a a great place to go. Uh, You mentioned the, the, you know, checking the the house. Uh, What are things that are important to consider if I want to make sure that I've got a a living situation that would would pass the test? Uh, You know, obviously, uh, I imagine having a, you know, enough space is, is certainly one of them, but w- what are things that people might not consider that are important to, uh, to make sure to have if you want to get the, uh, the approval in that regard? Oh, I think you hit it right there. It's the living space um, that, you know, it's, it's a clean, safe environment. They look for a lot of safety feature, um, <laughs> making sure you have a, um, you know, the appropriate smoke alarm, um, and of course, heat, air, uh, you know, water, uh, cleanliness of the, faci- the the place. There, there is a each agency uh, home developer has a licensing regulation checklist that they go through, and they'll walk through your home with you. And if there are certain things that need to uh, you need to fix or improve, they will share that with you in order to get you into compliance. I, I imagine just, uh, you know, for people out there that, that might be wondering if you are a single parent uh, versus, you know, having a, a husband or a wife or a partner, does that impact your ability to be a, a permanent foster parent uh, as opposed to a mentor or one of the other options that you presented earlier? No, not at all. Uh, we we have some great single parent foster parent and <laughs> we're the the question may be and again because each agency license uh, they each license the foster family or fam or or individual uh so each one has their different criteria but the biggest thing that i've heard from these agencies is that if you're a single parent they just want to make sure you have appropriate support um so that you know because it is stressful to to try to foster and to make sure that you have a good support system in place. And so they'll help you to identify those systems, whether it's a church, whether it's your aunt, your uncle, your cousins, or your friends that could help come in and not only help you with your mental well-being, but also help care for for the child that you take into your home. Dr. Garcia, you mentioned wanting to make sure that these kids uh, remain in a, a familiar environment. You use the example if you you know you grew up in Fort Worth, not uh, sending a, a child to San Antonio where that you know they've maybe spent no time. Uh, how tough is it for these kids to maintain the relationships with their friends? Uh, you know, as they uh, 
you know, undoubtedly enter a, a different environment, even if it's, you know, geographically not an unfamiliar environment. Is is that a challenge or how does that go about? Because obviously at that age and, and at any age, I'd, I'd imagine those relationships with friends, not just family, are, are important. I appreciate you asking that because I think that's probably the hardest part of our, we hear from, we have a youth advisory council and they share that with us. They said that's the hardest part because it's, you know, when they are in the school, there's a stigma of uh, you're in foster care. And so there is that, that, you know, when you're a teenager, you're embarrassed about everything. Um, that is probably one of the toughest aspects for them is to maintain some sort of normalcy. And it may be that they're still going to that same school, but now they're in foster care. So there is that, that just really stigma that comes with being in foster care. And the youth have shared with us that even um, like something as simple as going to prom or going to, you know, uh, to just, football or, or sporting events. It is a very dis- difficult place that we put them in. Um, they're not able to participate like they, you know, like you should as a normal kid, you know, where you have parents that will take you there to the game. Now, suddenly they're afraid to ask their foster parents to take them to uh, their practice. Uh, they're, they're afraid to ask their foster parent to, Hey, I would love to, go to this dance but i don't have the money to for purchase and so there's all that hesitancy so they end up not participating like they should if they had a normal childhood that's uh you know that's definitely unfortunate to hear i guess and 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 please tell me if i'm wrong but if i'm uh you know if if i know that my son or daughter has a, a friend who is entering this sort of environment would it be uh, unfair to suggest that, you know, it would be worthwhile encouraging my son or daughter to be really proactive and, and maybe taking the onus and making sure that that, that particular friend, uh, is still an active part of, of their lives, uh, because maybe they're in a position where they're not, as you kind of just illustrated, not as comfortable being as proactive because of some of those challenges. Is that one way that, that people can help, uh, I guess, eliminate some of those challenges is just recognizing what they're dealing with and being really proactive in, in including them? Oh, that's perfect. And especially, yes, absolutely, Jared. And especially at this time of the year with the holiday season, you know, where everybody else is trying to buy gifts and in the spirit Christmas. Can you imagine if you were in foster care and or been removed and you, I mean, what is there to look for? And they do, especially teenagers, they rely on their friends and their friends need to just be comfortable having that uncomfortable conversation with them and just say, Hey, I don't care where you are. I love you as a friend and, and you're my friend. And so it doesn't matter if you're, you're living with your parent or you're living with in foster care, you're still my friend. And so we're just going to keep on moving and just go beyond that. And then from a, a foster family standpoint is, is there and maybe this is something that comes up in the the training obviously you're not throwing them into the fire right away but uh is it maybe more important for them to remind these kids you know hey i i want to be this is a, a two-way relationship you know I, I i'm not i'm not just here uh to make your life tougher you know if you you know if you want me to drive you somewhere tell me and 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 i guess is it important for the parents to recognize some of the things that the the kids might have uh, hurdles uh, about mentally in, in terms of those sort of conversations? Oh, absolutely. If they can just, you know, be themselves and be open for with the communication, and they always say communication, communication, it's a two-way street. Um, and at first, you know, don't feel bad if the youth are not as open as they should be just know that they're coming from a place that they've been traumatized and teenager as you uh, we talked about they're not that verbal um in half the time you don't know what they're thinking but the therapist and then also the child placing agency have expert there that can help the foster family to communicate with the youth 
So I would say I would encourage the, the families to just reach out to their case manager that they're working with at the uh, foster care agency and, and seek their counsel um, to, to help communicate with the youth that are in their homes. Dr. Linda Garcia, Senior Vice President of To Engage, the website 2-I-N-G-A-G-E.org. That's To Engage, but the number 2, and instead of an E, an I, toengage.org. Uh, what are some other challenges that maybe aren't as obvious uh, to people who aren't, you know, in the middle of it, in the eye of the storm, that if there was maybe more awareness about uh, those challenges could be, uh, you know, if not eliminated, certainly minimized? I think that the the biggest challenge is um, anyone can be a foster parent if they, they care enough. And so the challenge is, is that it does take a little while to to become licensed, to become a foster parent. And right now with COVID, um, there is a lot of fear out there and we have experienced an extreme shortage of families wanting to become licensed to be foster parent because of COVID. Um, you know, I hate to say, it, but that's how it's affect our, um, our system. The, the COVID is, I mean, I, I guess, gosh, it's a, a, a ripple effect on, on everyone. What are, what are the biggest ways that's, that's impacted you and, and are, are there things people can do to, to help conquer some of those COVID specific challenges? I would say don't be afraid. I mean, the youth that we are, the children, when they come in the system, they are taken, they are, uh, they have medical care they are their insurance is taken care of is that the foster family need to know that uh you know we will make sure that they get medical attention but kids are not coming in with covid uh and if they they do test positive for covid we have professionals and and support system that will help you um and then also probably i would say the opportunity you have for covid for licensed foster family, traditionally, you would have to drive somewhere to go to a class to become licensed as a foster parent at night or on weekends. Well, fortunately, because of COVID, we're doing everything through Zoom, the training. So the only time that um, you are would have to open your home during the licensing period is that the, the actual case manager will come into your home to inspect your home. But Prior to all of that, you're doing all your training through Zoom on your schedule, uh, and they are working with you with your with your um, your time. It's uh, you know it's 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 unbelievable the type of impact this has all had. Uh, Dr. Garcia, financially, are, are there ways people can support if if maybe they you know they, they don't have the ability to commit any of those those hours as a parent or a a mentor or a part of the CASA program, but it, it just, is there a, a need financially and, and how, uh, how can people best support uh, to engage financially? Um, think about sponsoring uh, any one of our agency and working with our agencies, give them gifts, uh, you know, bring them Christmas gifts or gift cards. Uh, this time of the year, what we try to do as a network of foster care agencies is that try to make sure that every single child that's in our care has a present. Um, and for these agency, the child placing agency that's working in our network, some of them are having to do it to purchase that out of their own pocket. Um, so if you're interested in doing that, just look at, you know, when you go to To Engage website, we have our 12 agencies that we contract with. You can donate to any one of those agencies. And then finally, Dr. Garcia, we've covered so much. Uh, is there anything that, that you think is important to reiterate or maybe something we have not covered that you want to make sure people are aware of when it comes to To Engage and, and the amazing work that you all do? I think the biggest thing, Jared, is that I just appreciate you uh, giving me this opportunity to visit with you because this time of the year especially, it is really hard for families as they're struggling to try to keep uh, their children, uh, you know, in their homes. And I know we, I, I 
stress the point of foster care, but there is also this other population that we deal with that are kinship care, which whenever children are removed and they're placed with their relatives, we also support them. So just remember that there are some great, great individual and families out there that are taking care of the kids in our community, and we just need more of that, that goodwill in our community. Well, Dr. Garcia, thank you for everything you do for, for these kids and, and, and you know, the, the domino effect of the, the people whom your work and, and the work of To Engage impacts. We really appreciate that and, and certainly appreciate you coming on with us this morning and, and sharing your story and the story of To Engage. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to all. And uh, we've got more Better Living going to turn it over to the Hall of Famer, Chris Arnold, as we continue with Better Living here this morning. Thanks, Jared. We are delighted to spend some time with Carl Falconer, the president and CEO of the Metro Dallas Homeless Alliance. Now, the Metro Dallas Homeless Alliance, MDHA, leads the development of an effective homeless response system that will make the experience of homelessness in Dallas and Connor counties rare, brief, and non-reoccurring. MDHA brings together more than 85 shelter, housing, and supportive services programs and retooling homelessness services into a crisis response system. Carl, first of all, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing good. How are you? Very good, very good. Can you tell us more about the Metro Dallas Homeless Alliance and how it started and the progression over the years? Absolutely. Um, it, it, it actually started, it predates me. Um, I've only been here for two years, so it predates me, um, <laughs> and it started out of a an idea, my understanding anyway, is an idea that the uh, uh, mayor at the time, uh, Mayor Mike Rawlings had um, several years ago. He came up with an idea that he wanted to create an agency that could kind of be that backbone, that backbone or that lead agency to really help um, drive uh, the homeless rehousing system, to really try and get more people that were homeless off of the streets. Um, it started as kind of a collaboration with the bridge, which is now an emergency shelter on its own. Uh, we were a collaboration between us and them, um, sharing kind of the same entity and organization, and then we broke off. Um, to, to basically just become that backbone organization that you've already described um, and to really kind of help us drive forward uh, ending homelessness in Dallas and Collin County. So help me paint a picture. Let me help visualize this. Basically sure. what you're doing now looks different than what it was before and kind of paint that picture for me. Yeah, absolutely. So uh before what we were really trying to do when we were uh, when we were part of the bridge is more direct service. Right. Um, we were more involved in actually helping people get off the streets, helping people get into housing, all of those types of things. Now what we do is we support all of the different agencies that are trying to help people with that direct service. So instead of now us actually providing the direct service to homeless individuals, what we do is we try to support our partner agencies with them providing the direct services. So we do things like training. We do things like monitoring. We do things like quality improvement. We measure the data. We look at uh, data analytics. We look at the trends across the country. We bring research to the table. We do all those types of things to help our providers be better at what they're doing. So we try to inform them. We try to educate them. We also try to educate the public, the community, about what our system looks like, what homelessness looks like, who the individuals are and who the individuals are not that are out in our community. You know, it's interesting. It sounds like to me, as I visualize it, you're basically taking a 21st century approach to this. If this were technology or analytics, you're basically a homeless services hub. Am I wrong? No, that's that's true. We are trying to take a 21st century approach to it. We're really trying to use the best practices and the data to really drive our decisions and really kind of look at it, again, from that system level to be able to help everybody improve where they're at. So it's really that 
kind of that quality improvement to the entire system that we're really trying to add and bring to the table so that, you know, places like Family Gateway, who's one of the providers that works with us, places like them, they they have a lot of information about their own organization, but they don't necessarily have all the information about, you know, Austin Street Center, which is another one of our organizations. So when we collect data from both of them, we can tell them even how they're affecting each other or even how they're affecting homeless people that might be sharing those services. They might be going back and forth between those two different services. We can show them where there might be some duplication of effort and so they can change that. We show them how they can be more effective. We show them what their uh, what times are or how long it takes them to actually provide the service or get people into housing or, you know, different things like that. And then, of course, we add other things uh, to the entire system whenever we see gaps, such as if, uh, if we're having a problem finding apartment units, we actually have a housing, what we call a housing locator here at our organization that goes out and actually uh, works with landlords to try to get more units on behalf of our system and all of our partner providers to be able to place people into housing. What I love about this conversation is it shows how this is so efficient, which means it's cost effective, which means everybody wins in this because you're not wasting services, you're not wasting time, and you're actually getting services to the people who need it much better. Oh, absolutely. Um, I I was in a I was a part of a conversation the other day, and uh, it was. Uh, Someone talking about uh, it was a police chief talking about how um, they had started looking at some nonprofits in their area um, to determine how best to use their dollars because nonprofits um, typically and by their very nature uh, have to be so efficient with their dollars. Yes. We don't have dollars to to waste. We don't have dollar. We don't have extra dollars to use for you know. Uh, uh, extra things or or inefficiencies. So that's really what we're trying to do is we're trying to maximize every single dollar that comes into the system and make sure that that on behalf of the system, everybody is being as efficient and effective as they possibly can. So that you know, and again, as the as kind of the providing the oversight for that system, we're taking that system level view, whereas the other providers can focus on their own individual agencies and trying to make their individual agency as productive as possible. We are talking with Carl Falconer, the president and CEO of the Metro Dallas Homeless Alliance. And can you tell us a little bit about your background? You mentioned that you just uh, got involved with them about two years ago. So how did you get involved with MDHA? Um, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I grew up in South Dakota, um, immediately went into the Army, um, upon uh, graduation from high school and uh, was in the Honor Guard in Washington, D.C. Uh, after that, I moved down to Jacksonville, Florida, um, and uh, I went to school there in Jacksonville. And when I got out of school, my my best friend um, at the time who had gone through school with me, she said to me, she said, you know what, I just started working at this organization um, and they do street outreach with homeless individuals who have severe mental illnesses, trying to get them into housing. She mm-hmm. said, come over here and work with me. And I thought, well, you know, sure, this sounds like something to do. It sounds like something, you know, I might want to be a part of. And I started my first time going out on the streets and meeting with the people that were out there and trying to help them get into housing. I absolutely fell in love with it. Um, and I have been working in the uh, homeless rehousing system ever since. I've held just about every job there is within the system. Uh, I've been, as I said, a street outreach worker. I've been a case manager. I actually ran a large emergency shelter in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, and and uh, last, the last thing I was doing is I was working with a behavioral health organization in Jacksonville, and we were trying to help actually multiple continuums of care in our in our regional area. Um, but I moved here about two years ago. We saw the opening here for this position with MDHA, and I thought, you know what, this is a, this is a great opportunity uh, with the experience that I have. Um, I think I can bring a lot to the table here in Dallas. I talked with 
uh, some of the people from Dallas here, and I realized there's some fantastic resources. It's a fantastic community, and it's just it, to me it seemed like it was the perfect uh, the perfect point in time for me to get involved in this process um, with again with my expertise and my leadership coming here with all the resources and all the great providers that you all have here. I, I think it's a it's a perfect time for us to kind of turn a corner here in Dallas and really work towards ending homelessness here. Well, welcome to te- Texas, and we are so glad you are here. A lot of us who like to give back and, and help the homeless are so are so appreciative of you being involved and all the others. Um, this year, of course, we've got a pandemic, first time in 100 years that the world is dealing with a a major pandemic of this size. Can you talk about the rise of the COVID cases in 2020 and how that's affecting homelessness and how you guys, the MDHA have tried to help? Yeah. So um, COVID has had a couple of different effects on our system overall. Um, first of all, let me say though, that the, that really the, the, the strength of our system, I think is that we, uh, our providers and the people who work in this industry really have have um, for years been dealing with crisis and dealing with different difficult situations and things like that. So, you know, even though COVID-19 is something different than any of us have, have really kind of uh, seen in our communities, it really isn't that much different for a lot of our providers in terms of what they deal with day to day. Um, there are, you know, contagious diseases and things like that. We have a very uh, uh, vulnerable population that we work with every day, and so for them, this is kind of a kind of a new type of normal, but but still very similar to the to the normal that they were used to even pre-COVID. Um, they still have a lot of precautions in place. Of course, we put more in place with COVID but um, putting more uh, precautions in place, but really a lot of them were already there um, before. Um, in terms of how the community and how we've responded kind of with the community, we have seen a whole, an increase in homelessness um, mm-hmm. since COVID started. About 100 and I think it's 165 people, new homeless individuals over what our norm is each month um, since COVID started. What we're seeing is uh, in a lot of the population, we're seeing a different type of homeless situation, though. A lot of people who are kind of on the edge, who are on the fringe, who are working jobs, right? who may have had kind of a, just a, a, an unstable housing or, or, you know, something that they were barely holding on to. How about being then, involved in the gig economy and living check to check? How about that? That's, yeah. that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Living check to check. And so a lot of those people have become homeless. And, mm-hmm. and of course, the reason is because, you know, the economics, the employment, um, they don't have those jobs any longer and they couldn't afford to stay in their homes without those jobs. And so, We've seen a lot of newly homeless individuals um, who we think, you know, will be able to get, and we've been trying to get back into uh, the community and back into housing because they are employable. They're they're people who were working jobs. They're people who can work jobs. A lot of them um, we're we're trying to get right back into you know their housing and right back into into being productive members of society. So this is one of those situations where you said, okay. We are set up to make sure this is not going to be a reoccurring thing. We're able to figure out what we can do to help these particular individuals and help them see the other side uh, once the pandemic subsides. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And again, there are different types of homeless individuals. And yes. That's the other thing that that we've really you know prepared ourselves for even prior to COVID nineteen is that is that there are, anybody can become homeless. That's right. And anybody can. Ha- anybody can be in a situation where they find themselves homeless. And so we've had to look at all the different alternatives, all different types of housing and different types of alternatives, whether that's um, shared housing where two people, you know, get into a house to make it more affordable for them, or whether it's a, a small subsidy that we offer to people for a month or two months 
or three months just to get them by until they can get uh, reemployed and things like that. Um, so we've had to look at a couple of different alternatives, but honestly, again, our system and our providers, I got to give them all the credit in the world. They've been doing this so long that it, you know, a lot of this is not new to them. Um, you know, the different types of homeless people that they're running into. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is a little bit new, but, but really, you know, we've been preparing for this for a long time and, and our system is really doing a great job of getting people back into housing again. Carl, I've always had a big belief in the power of knowledge. And so I was curious about, you know, how once upon a time there was a major stigma involved with homelessness. There were a lot of people who did not want to let other people know that maybe they were living out of their car. And like you said, there's different types of homelessness. Can you talk about how the stigma is different with more knowledge today or has it been more of a challenge? Just kind of enlighten us on how, the perception has changed over time. Well, I think that is one thing that COVID-19 has kind of taught us a little bit. Is yeah. That, number one, there's a lot more people that can become homeless than what we thought. Um, it can happen to more people and it can happen, you know, uh, more easily than I think a lot of people would have thought before COVID-19. But the other thing is, is how connected we are as a community. You know, the homeless individuals and housed individuals, both riding on a bus, uh, are now, you know, more than ever attuned to how their health is my health. You know, right. how your health is the health of everybody around you. And so homeless individuals, I think that's the one thing um, that we've really that we've really seen with COVID-19 is that people are starting to understand that they're people first and they're just in a certain situation. And that's the biggest stigma that we've tried to overcome. And I think COVID-19 has helped us with that in understanding that these are human beings first. And they found themselves in this homeless status, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't define who they are and it doesn't define you know, what they can accomplish or where they can go um, beyond where they are right now or their situation that they are in right now. So I I think the stigma has gotten less, I hope, Um, from the people that I've talked to. What they've said is, you know, I didn't really realize how how closely related and how much of how, how connected homeless individuals were to the community. Um, But they are. They're part of our community. They ride the buses with us. They go to, you know, public uh, places uh, just like anybody else. Um, and so the only thing that obviously they're missing is that housing. And trying to get them reintegrated into that is is really what we're trying to do. But I think that's the biggest stigma that we're still trying to overcome is people seeing it as kind of different than who they are. I think COVID-19 has really kind of opened a lot of eyes for people in that regard. So one of the many questions some wonder is when you see a homeless person asking for money, maybe they're on a corner asking for food, should you help them or should you support an organization instead? You definitely want to support the organization. There's no doubt about that. Um, What I always tell people when it comes to giving people money um, out on the street or, or whatever, people who are asking for money or asking for other things is, it's okay for you to do that. That's perfectly fine. That's what your belief is or or that's where your values are or whatever the case is. But there's two things that that you have to remember is number one, there's very rarely any amount of money that you can give that, that individual in that moment that is going to help them become housed. And so if you, if you redirect those resources to the organizations instead if you were to make that same donation of the amount of money you're giving to that individual to the bridge, the bridge could get somebody housed for that amount of money or something similar to that amount of money, um, which is why organizationally it's just more effective to be able to give money to organizations as opposed to individuals. The other thing about giving money to individuals is really um, what most people are doing, which, again, I'm not saying is a bad thing or or necessarily, you know, a bad thing is it's really about them feeling better 
uh, about themselves. Um, but again, it's really not going to, in most cases, it's not going to improve the situation of the person that you're giving the money to. Um, and the other thing is the expectation there is if you're giving money to someone and you expect them to do something very specific with those dollars, that's where you've got to kind of, you've got to kind of reel it back a little bit. Once that dollar leaves your hand, you've got to realize that that's that person's money and what they do with those dollars is up to them. Um, a lot of people have expectations of if I give you $5, I'm going to watch you, you know, walk across the street and do X, Y, Z or whatever with it. And when the person doesn't do that, they just get really angry with that expectation. But the reality is, is that person at that moment is just in survival mode and whatever it is that they have to do to survive is what they're going to try and use those dollars for. So again, I, I think it's more effective to give to organizations um, I certainly, again, don't, don't, you know, uh, don't, uh, get down on anyone who gives money to somebody who's asking for it on the street, but uh, it, it will go a whole lot further if you give to organizations. I love the way you phrased that and explained about survival mode. And you mentioned from the beginning of our conversation that there are different types of homeless individuals and different levels of homelessness. Can you talk about those individuals who may a, either be dealing with a drug issue, which is a type of homelessness. And then I understand, because I've kind of studied it a little bit, there are individuals who just simply don't like structure, and they may prefer to, like, live under a bridge somewhere. And how difficult it is, is it for them to have housing or even some structure in their lives? Yeah, um, let me uh, talk about the first set of individuals first, people with behavioral health issues, um, whether that's, you know, a substance abuse issue or a mental illness or, or even some kind of health concern or something like that. Um, those are obviously things that people go through. Um, the, what we have to realize, though, is that in the homeless population, it is not the majority of the people that are in the homeless population that are going through that. Now, the exception to that would be depression. Um, but, uh, look, I, I would challenge almost anybody who has ever been homeless to, you know, not become somewhat depressed mm -hmm. when you become homeless. Exactly. That's just kind of a normal thing that, that I think most people would agree that you would go through, um, you know, losing your housing. But taking that out of the equation, the majority of the people who are homeless do not have those types of issues. Um, when we run the numbers on it, um, and I've seen it nationally and I've seen it here locally, usually it's somewhere around 25%, somewhere in that neighborhood. About 25% of the people are dealing with some kind of mental health issue or substance abuse issue um, that is homeless. Um, but the, the vast majority of people that are homeless are not in that state. They don't. Right. Uh, they're not, um, you know, addicted to drugs or alcohol, or they don't have some serious mental illness. Um, in terms of people not wanting the structure and, and things like that, um, that's actually a myth. Um, the people that are out on the streets actually do want housing. Good. What, the, what they're trying to say to you when they tell you that they don't want housing or they want to be left alone or whatever, what they're actually saying to you is that what you have for them doesn't fit them, and they've tried to work through that before. I've been out there on the streets. Like I said, for years I was a street outreach worker. And when I came across those people, I'd sit down and I'd talk with them. And what I found out was they weren't really saying that they didn't want housing. What they were really saying is I've tried to get into housing before through systems and programs like what you're offering me, and they didn't work for me. And so at some point it was kind of that learned helplessness where at some point they just realized, you know what, it's just better for me to just say, I don't want it. I don't want housing. I don't want any part of what you're selling me. Mm -hmm. You know, what they're really saying to you is, I don't believe you. I don't believe you can get me into whatever it is that you're offering to me. And that's, a, that's why the job of the street outreach worker is really to overcome that, is to really sit down with them, understand what the issues are that the person's going through, understand what it is that they were having a, a difficult time with, whether it was rules or whether it was, you know, some other system barrier that was set up for them, um, and then overcome those barriers with them. Help them 
understand that, yes, we do have a type of housing for you. We do have some place that you're going to be able to get into. We do have a program or housing available for you. Um, but sometimes, again, the people have gone through the system so many times in some cases. They've gone through the system five, six, seven times, and they've been unsuccessful. And so sometimes it's really hard to overcome what what they're basically saying to you is, I don't believe you. I don't believe that you could get me into some other some other situation. We are having an excellent conversation with Carl Falconer, the president and CEO of the Metro Dallas Homeless Alliance. And Carl, you guys have had this thing called the Hard Conversation Series. In fact, you just had one this past Friday. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, we try and do this on a regular basis, and I say regular. Obviously, COVID has kind of thrown us off of our game a little bit. Um, but uh, last, uh, the year prior, I think we held five hard conversations. And what this is is really we reach out to either local or national experts, and um, we talk about different topics that uh, that obviously lead to or have been affected by homelessness, and we talk to them about whatever their expertise is. Um, and so we've had hard conversations with people about um, childhood trauma and how that affects homelessness. Um, we've had hard conversations with people about evictions and what evictions look like. Um, in some of our hard conversations, we'll um, point to a very specific book um, uh, or we'll talk to an author who's written something about these different topics. And so um, that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to educate the public about what's real out there. We had a great hard conversation last year with um, the the district attorney here in Dallas about uh, him not uh, arresting homeless individuals Mm -hmm. for uh, misdemeanor crimes of a certain level. Um, And it was a great opportunity for him to to get out in the community and really clarify what he meant talk about why he was taking the stance that he was taking, but also about the effectiveness and how ineffective it is to use a jail to basically, you know, get somebody off the streets for a few days and then put them right back out without any services. Are you talking about the great John Crusoe? I I am. He is awesome. He's a good buddy of mine. I love him. Oh, he's absolutely fantastic. And he was, again, if you get a chance, and that's the other great thing about our hard conversations is, we tape most of our hard conversations, so you can always go to our website at, uh, 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 what do you call it, on our website for MDHA. Sure. And you can always check out the hard conversations there as well. Now, you also have been uh, honoring and celebrating case managers with your case manager of the year luncheon. Can you tell us about the uh, case managers? Oh, uh, it's, it's one of my favorite um, things of the year to do. We do a case manager of the year award luncheon where we actually get nominations from our providers about case managers that are working in their agencies, doing great work every day. Um, Case managers are the linchpin of our entire homeless rehousing system. I mean, they are on the front line. They're where the rubber meets the road. They're working directly with those individuals, and they're trying to get people housed, and they're trying to keep people housed. And so we do an award lunch with them um, every year, where we recognize the the best case managers in our community. Um, and this year we actually we unveiled three new awards, um, the Radiant Rookie for those new case managers who are coming on less than a year in service, the Tireless Teacher, who's the person who, you know, absolutely reaches out to their fellow colleagues and provides training and research and years of experience, and then the compassionate soul, who obviously that speaks for itself, the person who just shows a, a level of compassion that's unparalleled. Um, but those are our case managers. I mean, that's what they do. They're they're fantastic. They they do everything for for the individuals that they're working with. And we we were very very pleased and are very pleased every year to do our case manager of the year luncheon um, and give them awards and recognize them. And finally, can you tell us about the Metro Dallas Homeless Alliance end-of-year campaign that you guys have been promoting on social media? Absolutely. Um, Obviously, we're a nonprofit, just like any nonprofit in Dallas, and what we're looking for is just support. Um, You've heard about 
the things that we do here and providing support to the entire system. If you really want to have a large collective impact on our system, um, feel free to give to uh, Metro Dallas Homeless Alliance. Um, any resources that you have available, anything that you can help us with, all of our dollars get, fund, get funneled right back into the system and helping our partners coming up with bringing new trainings here, um, new technology that we have, uh, you know, any types of things that we can do to help support our, our partners here in getting people housed. Hey, Carl, we cannot thank you enough for joining us. I want to wish you a very happy holidays and happy new year. And thanks again for being with us today. Absolutely. Happy holidays to you and a new year to you as well. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. That is Carl Falconer, the president and CEO of the Metro Dallas Homeless Alliance. I'm Chris Arnold. Thanking you so much for listening. Tune in next week at this time as we bring you more organizations and people helping North Texas right here on Better Living, the place for you to be. So long, everybody. We appreciate you. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.